This week's episode of A Cure for Baldness is proudly brought to you by RJ's Carpets. Specialising in vinyl flooring and carpet installation, RJ's Carpets are your trusted flooring experts. Contact the team at RJ's Carpets on 0414 567 560 or email rjscarpets.com.au. Coming to you live from Radio Hub Studios, it's A Cure for Baldness. Now here's your host, Silky and Bush. Well, Radio Hub listeners, welcome to it. Silky and Bush, a cure for baldness. Are we course no, the only cure there is is laughter and great stories. And tonight, Silky, we've got another great story. We've got a special guest we've known for over 20 years. We call him a great friend of ours. We work with him lots on the MC circuit. He's an all-round champion, but he's just got a book out. Surfer, larrikin, carpet layer, you name it. He's done it all, Bush. Big wave charger. MMA fighter, one of the first. It gives us great pleasure to welcome to the studio the one and only Richie Vass. Richie, welcome to a cue for baldness. Boy, thanks for having us. What's going on? Yeah, mate, great to have you in. Look, we, uh, mate, we had you at the top of our list, and we know that you had a fight coming up, and we wanted to get you in to a cure for baldness. Of course, hasn't launched yet, but one of the most exciting things is what has launched is your book. Yeah, and I've been wrapped. Um, this, this book sort of the sea was planted over a year ago. Um, you know, it finally came out the last few weeks. We had a, we had a great launch the other week down Maroubra at the North End Cafe, and yeah, had a great turnout. Plenty of heads on scene for uh, you know a long time, and um, mate, it's been a lot of fun. So I was out there now and. Now, me and Sean Doty, the, the, you know, an author who, who jumped on board, helped me out with it. We had a lot of fun with it, and hopefully, uh, now it's a light, light-hearted read. And uh, yeah, my, yeah, it's enjoyable for for those who grab it. Hopefully, Richie, how does a bloke like yourself, carpet layer, and you know, I've read the book. You, you weren't the greatest of uh, kids at school, but uh, how did you find your way to becoming an author? Yeah, yeah I probably wasn't you know uh, the, the greatest academic, but um, yeah, like I said, the, I was approached maybe a year ago by the guys from Alan Unwin, the publishing group, uh, through. Uh, and I actually have been working with uh, Harry and Miller. So they, they, they planned to see the idea because Tom Gillett, the head publisher, has a 17-year-old son, uh, Freddie, who loves to surf. And um, I think through Freddie, Tom was up to date with Fighting Fear and the crew and you know, everything we've been up to the last few years and sort of knew my story and wanted to know if I was keen to put it down in the book. And Now, I was flattered when he approached me about it, but I was a little unsure and kind of a little uncomfortable about about you know how to go about it. Like, is this something people are going to want to read or... Um, so he said, listen, we'll take it to our sales team. I said, well, I'll take it to Sean Doherty. If he's available and can jump on board with me and you know, help me through it, you know, um, we'll, we'll give it a go. And he got the okay from the sales team. Sean was available. So, yeah, the start of the year, we started putting pen to paper, and it's been a lot of fun. And, yeah, it covers a lot of things. You know, it's pretty lighthearted. You know, there's some more serious things throughout the book. But generally, it's just a lighthearted, you know, account of my life. Rich, can I also add on your behalf there? I mean, your story to date is exceptional. It's a story so far. And A Cure for Baldness, one of the reasons we wanted John, we wanted John before we knew the book was coming out. Uh, we wanted John to tell your story so far, the characters, the surfing, the fighting, the things you've done, the things you've achieved. For a guy that's come out of school that openly admits in his book that school wasn't your thing, what you have achieved in your career to date at 33 years of age is exceptional and worthy of pen and paper. So hopefully in this podcast we can articulate a lot of that. A lot of great yarns, a lot of great stories, and just some light-hearted entertainment of the Richie Vass story so far. Yeah, hopefully, and I, I mean, cure for baldness too. Like my my uh, my fringe is about to meet my eyebrows, so <laughs> I've got a. I might be on something here to help you guys out because lack of yeah, I got no issues with lack of hair. I got um, 
yeah, hair growing out <laughs> all, all areas of your body, so we can try and work on that too. Well, I know who will listen to this, one of your great, there's two of them, the Beast from Maribor and, of course, Jimmy Olsen, two great influencers and mentors and mates of yours, along with myself, who wouldn't mind some sort of donation from you too. Silky fancies himself <laughs> as a hair donator, a bit of a slick back. So you're on a cure for Baldur's with Silky Bush and Richie Vass, and we're going to be right back after this with the beginning of our great podcast. Radio Hub is Australia's premier podcasting facility. With high-quality sound equipment and production services, Radio Hub is a one-stop shop for all your podcasting needs. So, if you're ready to jump into the exciting realm of podcasting, contact Radio Hub on 0402 870 900 or email info at radiohub.com.au. Yeah, welcome back to A Cure for Boldness. And Richie, I've got to tell you, uh, you know, great mentor and friend of yours. We've mentioned him already once. He's going to get a second one. Jimmy Olsen reckons he won the Maroubra Board Riders Spelling Bee by getting your last name correct. But you're known as Richie Vass. H- how do you spell your last name? How do you pronounce your last name? And, and, and you know, talk us through it. Yeah, so like everything, you know, in, in a, uh, Aussie lingo, we abbreviate everything. Uh, my actual surname is Vatsulik. It's, uh, it's Czech. My, my father's yep. um, you know, from the Czech Republic. Um yeah, my mum's from Manchester, you know, England. So obviously, growing up as a with a foreign name, everyone gave it a crack, but it quickly got abbreviated to just Vass, and yeah, you know, that's how it came about. So now I'm, uh, you know, something I kind of realised actually doing the book. With, you know, I'm a first generation Aussie. And I'd heard the term thrown around. And I never really applied it to myself because I just thought I was, you know, Aussie as and always just, you know, that's how I thought of myself. But when I started thinking back, I was, oh, you know, mum's from Manchester. Dad came out to Australia as a political refugee from the, you know, Czechoslovakia. Um, yeah, and that's why I got thrown in ESL as a kid because I, I mumbled and I had a, a name that no one could uh, pronounce. So let's let's just touch on that point. For those who don't know, ESL is English as a second language. <laughs> so can you tell us the story about you know your young kid? And it's in the book. Tell us, tell us the, or share the story about uh, you know going, going to school and having uh, being in the English as a second language class. Yes, yeah, so I was at Maribor Junction Public School, and um, you know, I was just a little kid. I actually had really bad hearing. I had to have this operation and get these things called grommets put in your ears to. Uh, you know, widen your ear, your canals in your ears so you can hear properly. Yeah. So I couldn't hear, so I wasn't really speaking well. I wasn't learning at school because I, I couldn't hear a thing. Um, given the, you know, the, the, the surname that no one could pronounce, everyone just thought I was a little fresh immigrant. Now, like, <laughs> now, Maru Junction Public School was full of them at the time, so I got thrown in with the Vietnamese kids of the Greeks. Uh, you know, whoever was in there um, is English as a second language. So I, uh, I sat there, I'd point up at a, you know, a big board on, on, the, on the wall and say, you know, a is for apple, you know, B is for bear, C is for cat. And uh, I was actually, as the only and first and only time I've ever been top of my class, so I, could, I could blitz it. But um, <laughs> no, it wasn't a lot of competition really, you know, compared to the little Vietnamese kid next to me or, or the Greek kid who neither could speak a word of English. So. And, and it was pretty much the start of you becoming the class clown and a bit of a scallywag, or as the book says, a larrikin. Yeah, but I don't know what it was, maybe... Yeah, you know, the book touches on this as well. Like I, you know, always suffer from a bit of small man syndrome. I guess you know that always. Uh, I guess wanted to be a bit of a attention seeker, a class clown. It's something that's always been uh, a part of me, and you know, I had a lot of fun at school. And uh, you know, I used to you know get a laugh every now and then, so it kind of encouraged me. And you know, that that um, I guess you know, that small man syndrome has probably pushed me into a lot of things that you know I, I choose to take on as careers later in life. But uh, yeah, I had a lot of fun at school. As like I said earlier, I wasn't probably the best academic, but I enjoyed it. Looking back, Richie, how much does that, uh, like that chapter of your life, the very early chapter, make you realise how there's just some great people in this country that have come out from absolutely nothing? Your dad's a political refugee. You're mistaken because of your grommets and you're in the ESL class. How much does it shape your future and how much you want to succeed? 
yeah, look, I, I, it's great. I think we you know we, we're, I think we live in the luckiest country in the world, and you know, uh, it's provided my, my dad with you know the future where he didn't really have one in the Czech Republic at the time. Um, my mum came from Manchester, and they just you know so so fortunate to be brought up here, and and like you said. Um, now, front in ESL, I, I loved it. I, I saw the bright side to it. I, you know, I was uh, I was happy to be in there, and um, you know, just just yeah, it's just been it's been an awesome ride. You know, it's, I actually love school because I always had a great bunch of mates. Um, you know, the marks weren't always the best, but I was always in there having a good time. So yeah, been pretty fortunate, mate. It's uh, sent us into the school years. So you're down at Maroubra Bay Public School and and your Maroubra Junction Public School. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you're, riding, you're trying to get into your surfing. You sort of liked your board riding. You were near the beach. You had a bit of a love for the ocean. And, uh, and, and you know, your mum was always worried about you getting hurt, injured, drowning, all those sort of things that you think of when your kids are young. Talk us a little bit through how you become, uh, you know, so passionate about surfing and, and got into it. Yeah. No, I don't really know where it started, but I just always loved the ocean and loved surfing. My uncle, who's from Manchester as well, he, he um, you know, moved to... Australia not long after my mum had, had moved, made her way out here, and he was just a surf mad pom. You know, he just Uncle he, Mick, Uncle Mick, yeah, Uncle Michael. He just he really sort of really encouraged me to get in the water and surf, and he was the first one and you know, helped me, you know, push push me into a wave and got me standing. And just since then, that's all I ever wanted to do. And um, yeah, I, I was yeah probably always pretty ordinary at you know, risk assessment, like whether it be making a flying fox in the front yard or whatever. I'd always you know think it was a good idea. So when mum, you know saw that I enjoyed surfing. She was pretty scared of me getting on, on a fiberglass board and, uh, you know, having to watch me down the beach. So we used to go to Avalon all the time where my, my uncle and, and relatives are from and that's, you know, where I started surfing on my, uh, you know, my fiberglass board and when I came home, I'd just stick to my bodyboard just so, you know, keep mum's nerves a little bit more settled. But, um, yeah, you know, it, it was awesome. I loved nippers as a kid. So I was always down the beach. Whenever, whenever I had the spare chance, I was pestering mum and dad to get me down the beach and in the water. So um, that's where it all started. But it was actually your mum who uh, signed you up to Maroubra Board Riders. Yeah, well, I think she just got sick of me just driving her mad. Like, take me to the beach, mum, want to go surfing, want to go surfing, want to go surfing. And, and you know, she'd sit on the beach and uh, read a book and try to keep an eye on me. You know, she put me on a fluoro wetsuit so I'll stick out out there so she could see, you know, where I'm at. <laughs> but, um, you know, eventually she's like, I'm going to take you and join these board riders because my uncle had told, you know, mum about board riders clubs and, you know, Maroubra's got one, so go and, you know, see what it's all about. So I went down the beach. It was you know, the milk bar at the time. It's called Raw Milk Bar. It was Sean Bernatello was running at the time and said, oh, I want to get my son in board riders. And he said, okay, go down to the surf shop, Ruben Underground. And Hair Bear was there who you know, was running the surf shop, also had a lot to do with the board riders. Said, get him joined up. And you know, that's exactly what happened. And yeah, I was about, I was 10 at the time and I had a bunch of mates, but no one was really into surfing. You know? they, we all played footy together, soccer, whatever it was, and hung out outside of school. But I didn't have that many mates who were just you know as surf mad as I was. And you know, my cousins were... You know, right into surfing, Danny and, and Laura, but, you know, me and Danny were the same age and we were just both surf, man. And he had his little crew up at Avalon who were all just, like, you know, frothing on surfing and just that's all they ever want to do. And I, I was craving that down here. So as soon as I, you know, joined the board, I just, it opened my eyes to a whole new world and there, you know, there it all was. So how did it feel as a young kid from Maribor in a fluoro wetsuit, English is a second language, grommets in his ears, <laughs> mother's reading a book from Manchester and you're just hanging out with the bra boy uh, Maribor board riders? Yeah, look, I think I think that um, you know, that class clown, that that uh, that love of making everyone laugh and having a lot of time, to, to just translates straight into board riders. You know, all of a sudden, like I had a whole new audience. You know, they all like were loved and passionate about exactly what I was, you know, loving at the time, which was surfing. They all encouraged me to get out there, but then then I was introduced to this whole world of you know this surfing brotherhood and this larrikinism, and you know, everyone loved to ride off and have a good time. I was like, this place is unreal. You know, I can't. We, you know, board riders was everything that I was looking for. Um, How so, old were you at the time? And where were you living? 
Yeah, I was 10. And I grew up at Little Bay, um, out near La Perouse. Um, so grew out there. It was only you know, a five, ten-minute drive to Maroubra. Um, did nippers down the beach. Then once I joined board riders, it was just like, this is all I want to do is just surf, hang out with guys who love to surf as well. And, um, you know, I, I just, it was no shortage of idols. You know, I just looked up to everyone in the board riders. Um, you know, some of the best surfers, you know, in the world at the time down there. And, um, mate, that was it. That's where I, was just, I was just hooked and obsessed with surfing. That's where I want to spend all my time down at the beach. Who were those early influences, you know, from the board riders? Oh, you know, we had the Aberdeen brothers, you know, who were just, yeah, like Kobe at the time was just, just coming into his own. He was just, you know, his, his brothers, I guess, kind of set the bar, you know, of how to make it as a professional surfer, and he just wanted to try to outdo them. So I just looked up to Kobe just as a, you know, a larger-than-life character, an absolute idol. And, but, you know, from guys who were just a little bit more older than me, like Mark Matthews, Luke Dennett, Paul Moffat, you know, Wayne Cleveland. There were so many guys who were just ripped in the surf. You know, Matthew Phillips, uh, Flopper. Like, it was just so many characters down there just all ripped in the surf and loved to have a, you know, a good laugh on the beach, whether at the sausage series or the, the board riders present at the end of the day. I was just in stitches all day, you know, and it was just, um, I just looked at, there was so many different characters. And then there was guys like Mumbles and Scotty Gunza, these guys who, you know, older, even older again, who were just, just the classic write-offs, you know what I mean? Um, Jimmy Olsen, Waza Fox. I mean, there's there's so many guys who I just like look at look at it, you know, at all at that age. For for those who haven't been uh, lucky enough to be involved in a board riders prezo or involved in a board riders, just take our listeners through uh, maybe a board riders prezo night. What's some of the crazy stuff you got up to? Yeah, well, I mean, just I mean, the prezo night's a whole another level. That's just like <laughs> you know something totally different. Because you remember being pushed in Maroubra uh, Idol one year. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Wow. Well, that's, yeah. But, yeah, just in general. Do, 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 Ken Sutcliffe. But, yeah, so, I mean, that's, that's I was just drawn to that, you know, that ride-off attitude. You know, everyone's out there have fun. Um, you know, they love surfing. So I was just like, it was just, it was a no-brainer. It's all I ever, it's the only place I ever wanted to be was down at River Beach. And, you know, the board riders, uh, after each comp, you know, would have the prezzo just who won the, the contest on that day. But, you know, it would always be decided by a dance-off at the end of it. So, you know, whether we were in the micro-grommets, you know what I mean, the 10-year-old kids or the 16-year-old kids or the 18-year-olds to the, you know, to the open division, it would all end up in a dance-off. You know, someone would pump the beats and it would be a mad dance-off, you know, to decide who won the uh, the contest. So if you did win the heat, now you you're probably in good stead. But if you won the dance-off, you know, you'll definitely go home with first, and first n- prize. And nudity is always a big part of uh, board riders as well. Huge part, you know, and that's what, uh, again, you know, there's a therapeutic sort of aspect of the book. I realised my dad's a mad nudist, my mum's not shy at getting nude, so that's why I just didn't hesitate getting nude down the beach either, you know. I just took to it like a duck to water. That coupled with the fact, you know, I was, uh, you know, I loved the attention, was class clown. I just uh, didn't keep my clothes on for about 15 years, but, uh, you know, I had a ball. Rich, we're going to talk about your travel and, and, and everything in a minute, you know, um, you know, your influences, big wake surfing, but how, I mean, with all the experiences and you're fighting later on, do you think there's another subculture in any other country in the world like board riders? Because I think what you just described, so many people from the outside wouldn't understand it, but the people inside are just hooked. Even I'm hooked. I don't even surf that well. I've surfed my whole life, and we're in Bondi. Maroubra's a whole different level. You know what I mean? Is there another subculture in the world in a sport or thing like that that could match it? Yeah, I, I can't compare it to anything. You know, I, I grew up playing footy. I've been in sporting clubs and that kind of stuff. But the board riders culture—it's just—it's just something else. Uh, it's just such a great way too to have all the surface on the beach, from ten-year-old kids to you know to fifty-year-old guys all getting to know each other, you know, and, and all becoming mates and all spending a day down there. Then you know having a great day with the contest, all competing, you know, doing a sausage sizzle, having a beer afterwards to, you- to see each other in the beach you know, the next week and saying, "Oh, g'day, Steve," you know, fifty-year-old bloke when you're a ten-year-old kid, like, and yep. ask him how you're doing. And you know. I love like there's hellmen in the water who you know are the hellmen they're the best surfers right there's hellmen out of the water 
Oh, and then, on land. And then you categorise that hellman. There's a hellman on the dance floor. There's a hellman at the barbecue. There's a hellman at the bar. Yeah. Like, there's just hellman everywhere, you know? Well, that's what I was relating to. Like, there's no shortage of those characters, you know, growing up in Border. I was like, you know, there was the, the guy who just knew was a mad knuckler. So, like, he could get away with writing off the mad surfer because the mad surfer's not going to say boo because this is the mad knuckler, you know? And I was like, you're trying to work all that out. You go, how's he painting out the mad surfer on the beach? And then you hear, because nah, he's the best street fighter around. So, like, oh, fuck. I was like, you're another world. And then you know, the funny write off bloke, you can just pay out anyone because he's just, or, you know, just always writing people off. funny so. bald fat guy. Yeah, exactly. So. <laughs> yeah, I know the type. It's, uh, it's amazing. Look, I mean, I remember the first time we came across you, it was the, the Buckler to Bra, which is every beach between Bondi and Maroubra used to have a surfing comp and it finished with a, a fashion show, which in turn led into a dance off. And Richie came out of the crowd nude doing cartwheels and front flips onto the stage in front of the judges who at the time were a couple of our mum's friends. But uh, <laughs> yeah. it was a crazy, crazy Former night. Miss Bondi, Sue <laughs> Robbo, 1969. Yeah. Great lady, great sort and just a wonderful mother. <laughs> Mate, classic at the Bondi Pavilion. Just turned into anything. Richie, um, I suppose that gives birth to, I suppose, the bra boy. Mm. To the bra boy, you know, and, and getting into that as you get a bit older and you've got that whole surf culture which shaped who you are today and and those years, a lot of people have a misconception what a bra boy is. And I want to touch on that first because I think, you know, Silky and I grew up in Bondi. You know, Silky's a big part of the Bondi board ride as I am. To a lesser extent, I don't surf as much as he does. We've got great respect for the bra boys and not because they're a gang. They're not a gang mm. because they're a culture of people who grew up in Ruben. They're so proud of where they're from. But I don't want to articulate it. This is your story. How do you articulate the bra boys? Yeah, I mean, I mean that's exactly what it is. And, and you know, I get questions from the media all the time about bra boys and their organised gang and this and that um, no we couldn't organise ourselves this is it just it's exactly like what you mentioned whether you're from Bondi Bronny Avalon any beach around the world has that same culture you know it's the group of guys who grew up at that beach they all love to surf there they're proud of where they're from you've got the board riders it's just it's exactly the same you know for, for Maroubra you know the last 30 years we've been called the bra boys we decided to get that tattooed across our bodies and obviously that's probably you know separated us a little bit point of difference from the rest of the board riding clubs and other beaches around and gives a bit more media uh, attention. But um, that's exactly what it is. It's just like a brotherhood of surfers who grew up in the same area and proud of where they're from. And um, Yeah, it's really hard to explain unless you go down there and you, you, know, you experience it yourself. But it's you know, you, I, I ask all the time from you know media about you know this organised gang, the Bra Boys, and I just, I just, it's so frustrating to, you know, to try to explain to them what it is because you they just don't the, understand it. You know, it's you realise the power of them. Even us, you know, you think about someone in the eastern suburbs. All of a sudden, if someone from Maroubra is, uh, is surfing in, in something, you know, or the, you know, the Red Bull Cape Fear or whatever. All of a sudden, the people from the rest of the eastern suburbs, all the other beaches are proud that he's actually an eastern suburbs, but from Maroubra, he might be a Bra Boy mm. because he's from Maroubra, but everyone sort of grabs him and owns him. Yeah, you know? or if you're fighting. We own you. The eastern suburbs own you. Maroubra, actually, you know, that's your, your core. Yeah, but, and but it's great. You know, within that you know, eastern suburbs community, that little rivalry, you know, we always want to be Bondi borderers in the buckle of the bra, you know. We always want to go out and, and party harder than the Bronny boys or whatever yeah. it may be. But but like like you said, as a group, like I'll be backing all the boys be from Bondi or Bronny. And I guess, you know, without trying to shy away from the fact the boys from Maroubra, they've got probably going to be a bit more trouble and there's a bit more of that criminal element down there. That's probably why the media jump on it so much and try to label as a, you know, organised crime and all that kind of stuff as a gang but um you know it, it's just like you know any other beach and, and you know you, you anywhere around the world you, you'll find the same kind of culture when i think of maroobra board riders and maroobra beach the one person that comes to mind straight away is kobe abaddon i know he had a, a lot to do with you like as a mentor growing up give us a brief kind of uh understanding of the relationship between you and kobe 
yeah, like when, when I joined Board Riders, like I said, Kobe was just really starting to make waves in you know in the surfing world. He was uh, like fearless in the water. He's fearless out of the water. You know, his famous fight with Johnny Boy Games. You know, at the time, Johnny Boy Games was probably the scariest man in surfing. And Kobe, at 18 years <laughs> of age, uh, you know, had a punch on with him. You know, over in Haleiwa. So just everything he was doing, I was just you know in awe. Like I just. He, he was fearless in every aspect. He could pull chicks. Um, you know, everyone looked up to him. And I was fortunate enough to you know, just be taken under his wing. And um, I showed interest in trying to surf you know, big waves as well. So he encouraged me and took me on trips. And uh, you know, really you know, tried to encourage me to, you know, to chase that lifestyle that he, he was living. So I was very, very fortunate. Um, and and you know, it has been amazing. So you know, without care, not only myself, Mark Matthews, Evan Forks, Rooster Adams, so many of us, he took under his wing. You know, he had a jet ski when jet ski, you know, toe surfing just came on the scene and, you know, was turning us in the way. So just, um, you know, we were all very fortunate to have him and have him, have him, like, you know, just really take us all under his wing and just share that kind of, you know, that limelight he was grabbing at the time. We're here with Richie Vass. We're talking about, you know, growing up at Maroubra and introducing, uh, you know, himself to surfing and big waves. We're going to take a short break and when we come back, we're going to touch more on chasing these big swells and, and more about the surfing. You're on a cure for baldness. If you're looking for a quality flooring solution, then check out RJ's Carpets. Their team of experienced and professional carpet installers will provide you with the right advice and product for any commercial, retail or domestic environment. Specialising in vinyl flooring and carpet installation, RJ's Carpets are your trusted flooring experts. Contact the team at RJ's Carpets for your free quote on 0414567560 or email rjscarpets.com.au. Welcome back to A Cure for Baldness. And, of course, we're with the great Richie Vass, surfer, fighter, larrikin, and all those things. But one thing he really is is an absolute champion of a bloke. Silky, uh, the one you've been waiting for, Chapter 2, really, if you call it that, it's the surfing section, something that's yeah. dear to your heart, something you uh, just love and get right in the detail and Richie of course really the thing that puts you on the map so you know you're down in Maribor we finished off uh, talking about the influences the bra boys the board riders all these great things this great Australian subculture who were your biggest influences at the time as a young surfer yeah well, I guess apart from all the boys that down the beach um, you know I just grew up as a huge Tom Carroll fan uh, you now he, he charged he's a st- stocky fella um, you now he grew up on the northern beaches so when i go up there surfing with my uncles and cousins you know i would hear rumors about him or, or like stories of him surfing out north Ave and all that kind of stuff so it was kind of close to home and you know he'd won world titles i had that poster of him doing that big hook under the lip at yeah. pipeline so you know i just just you know, loved him and just you know wanted to just idolize him so yeah tommy carroll was a huge one growing up you know always looked up to him Mate, before you got into the big wave or chasing big waves, you fancied yourself on the on the kind of the satellite tour. You know, not only in the board riders, but you know the local, the local kind of or state comps, the Southside Scholastics, and all that kind of thing. Yeah. But it wasn't really for you the uh, chasing the small waves. Yeah, look, I, I, I love competing. You know, I love competing board rides, and that led obviously to uh, you know going you know, Jesus Pro Am to the the Pro Juniors and doing all that circuit. You know, with with Evan Rooster, Mark Matthews was doing really good. At it. Kobe had a good competitive career as well. Luke Denner, all these guys who do really good in contests uh, who I looked up to down the beach. I want to, you know, try my, my hand at it as well. And, and I loved it. You know, I, I love traveling with mates, going to a, a different beach, surfing in the contest. Um, but it got to a point where, you know, I was like 16. I was working at Hoyt, serving popcorn, saving all my pennies to go pay for flights to go up to D-Bar, surf shitty waves, and then uh, realize, you know, get, get knocked out in my first heat. <laughs> and then... Um, 
come back and go, fuck, you know, Marky and Cobra just serve ship stones, you know, these fucking amazing new way, this. I was like, fuck, I wasn't going to save my money and do these trips, you know, like surf waves that you want to surf rather than just, you know, spend dollars surfing shitty waves and then, like, I wasn't going to result as after. I thought, well, I'm going to try and, you know, take this path of, you know, professional surfing. You know, you can still make a career out of it, so that's why I, st- I still want to be a professional surfer growing up, but it didn't have to be through Connish. Now, now that, like, Kobe and Mark were, were paving this way where you could make it as a pro surfer, but, you know, be a professional free surfer or big wave surfer, whatever you want to call it, but that avenue was starting to sort of develop, so that's what I want to do. Mate, I want to touch on Kobe because I know from an early age he, he was the inspiration to you charging big waves. I, I can distinctly remember, and it made the news, you were getting rescued off Lurline by the, uh, the Westpac helicopter yep. once upon a time. But how big an influence was Kobe into building you know, the big wave charger that you are today? Yeah, but he was huge because he just led the way. And, and not only that, you, you saw the respect he got. You saw, you know, if someone didn't pal out, you know, you got paid out of the pub or, you know, all night if you, you know, if you didn't pal out when it was big or whatever it was. So I, I didn't want to be that guy. So, <laughs> you know, I, I always forced myself to pal out when, you know, even though I was shooting myself, just, you know, I didn't want the guy to get paid out for the rest of the day. But then once I was out there, I realised, you know, I did enjoy it out there and, and I could pal into ways and I could make it. And then that, that feeling of, like, dealing with that fear... And sort of still surfing and go, fuck, you know, that's, that's, that's not too bad, actually. Or, or even if you fall on one and you pop up, you go, fuck, I just fell on a big one, but I popped up okay. And then it starts to build that confidence. So once I sort of crossed that hurdle, that fear was always there, but I knew I could handle myself in that situation. And uh, you know, and, and that's what I want to do. Added the fact, too, that, you know, my best mates, Evan and Rooster and Mark Matthews and all, you know, Jack Kingsley, all these guys, there's that real competitive vibe down the beach, which it crossed over to everything out in Maroubra, whether it be dance-off, chicks, partying, surfing, whatever it may be, fighting. There's a pretty healthy, you know, competitive vibe amongst you know, anything you want to do down there. So I wanted to get a bigger, you know, get a bigger wave than Ev. You know, everyone get a bigger wave than me. I, I want to try and, you know, kind of, you know, come in from a, you know, a session out low line or whatever it may be and uh, get the biggest wave. And that's why I mean, they're part of that day when we probably shouldn't. I stuck my leg rope and, you know, getting uh, rescued by the West Hat. Helicopter suits is uh, was it was actually more scary than the wipeout itself getting winched up in uh, into the helicopter. Rich, just talk us through that. I mean, <clears throat> for the layman, how big were the waves? Yeah, it was, it was just a huge onshore southerly swell, so it was probably between like eight to twelve foot and just messy. But growing up, you know, Lurline in those conditions was the only place you could surf. So yeah. to us, it was like our sunset. You know, it was our YME. It was like whenever it got big, we were straight to Lurline. It kind of handled the southerly wind. Uh, you paddle just take these you know, big drops on on this right hander and. Uh, you know, that's where, you, you know, you got that buzz, that big wave buzz. And Kobe, Mark were all surfed. They surfed that morning. They came in and said, boys, it's fucking big out there. You know, be careful if you're going to go out. But it's like, they said, man, ever like, no, neither of us want to say, no, I'm not going to go out. We're like, I'm going out. Yeah, well, so, so am I then. So, you know, we just wetted up and just went in out there. And, um, you know, first wave I got in, I'm closing out and I broke my leg rope and lost my board. And, you know, I swam back out the back. Ever just got one after me and we're both on. Evan's brand new uh, 6.6 lineup that he just got. And uh, we got sort of drifted out to sea and we were just going to get washed in the coogee because in that southerly swelling wind, you know, we just get washed in the coogee, no dramas. But within a second, the, the, the cliffs were lined with people and, and I thought, what's everyone going on? They must have thought we were dying. And then the helicopter uh, came over. Uh, I got winched up and the grumpy old you know, uh, rescue man gave us an earful, went back down and grabbed Ev. Ev was going, no, nah, I'm sweet. It's a brand new board. Uh, now I'll paddle in the coogee. He said, no, you won't. Take your leg rope <laughs> off. I'm fucking, I'm not, you know, I won't take no for an answer. So I still give a shit today about leaving his brand new uh, 6.6 out there. But uh, yeah, that's how it all unfolded. I guess basically because neither has wanted to say we didn't want to go out. And, and from there, from a, from an early age, you, you got to taste big waves overseas. I know, I think you're in year 12 when Kobe uh, took you to Hawaii for the first time. 
Yeah, it was, it was straight after my HSC. The day I finished my HSC, I jumped on a plane to Hawaii. You know, I had so many stories about it. Uh, Mark was over there. Kobe was really like at the height of his sort of notoriety. And you know, he was charging backdoor and pipe. He had just had the run-ins with, with Johnny Boy. So I heard all these stories about Hawaii. And I finally get out of there myself to you know, see what the big stuff was like. And you know, obviously, Hawaii is like the holy ground of big wave yeah. surfing. And uh, yeah, it was, it was an amazing experience. I got to you know, tag around. You know, with Cobe and, and meet all his Hawaiian mates because at that stage he uh, had a he- pretty healthy reputation over there and got on really well with the Hawaiian guys. So we were taken in and, um, you know, got to surf, you know, pipeline, backdoor and all those kind of ways, which was amazing. There's a lot of folklore about Hawaii, you know, and even for a some, somewhat surfer like myself who, who's been out pipeline on a boogie board, <laughs> four foot. But seriously, how easy is it for an Australian to go over to Hawaii as it would be not very easy to someone to come to Maribor and start charging waves and, and gaining the respect of the locals. Yeah, no, I mean, it's not easy at all. That's why it was so phenomenal that, you know, Kobe managed to do that, you know, and obviously he didn't do it easily. He had to take on Johnny Boy Gomes and that's all helped him gain the respect for the locals and, and the fact that he charged and, you know, went as hard, if not harder than any of the local guys out of backdoor especially. So he definitely like, laid the platform for the young guys from Aruba to go over there and, and uh, you know, be able to pat out in the lineup and try to get some waves too. So it's, um yeah, it's it's, it's cutthroat out there, you know. it's Because it's, it's such a dangerous wave, the impact, the, the takeoff zone's so tight and congested. Um, yeah, you know, tempers flare and it's, it's, it's a pretty intimidating spot. So to be able to go out there and meet meet the locals and, and at a young, you know, when I was only eighteen, it was it was, you know, it was, it was huge. You know, I could sort of I was getting called into waves by some of the local guys, which is, you know, I, I was chuffed and um, you know, it, it was great to see, you know, Marky and Cobe really started charging, get the respect, you know, globally now, not just in Maruba where everyone respect them, but now like over in Hawaii, you know, like I said, the holy grail of big wave surfing, they got respect over there as well. So that's something that really sort of you know lit a fire in my ass too to try and do the same yeah two years ago we hired a couple of houses my business partners and went over there and i actually ended up in the hurley house got there late at night didn't know got up in the morning it was 10 foot and yeah. i just it was a theater a lot of people were on the shore and they were making the sign of the cross i took one of our um you know young kids um down to the beach just to sort of t- put his toe in the water and the water just rushed it just rushed um further further north yeah and i couldn't believe how quick the water had moved Mate, how difficult is that wave? How dangerous is that wave? And how cautious do you have to be? Yeah, well, it, 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 you know, it combines all those kind of you know, scary elements that a big wave has. You know, it breaks in super shallow water. You know, it, it, the waves get huge. They come out of deep water, so they stand up on the reef. And it breaks so close to shore. That's why you know it has that theatre aspect to it. You can stand only metres away from where guys are getting barrel off their heads. Yep. Um, but the currents out there too are just are roaring. Like you know, you step one foot into the you know into the water, and then you, you're taking off your feet. And uh, that's why you know, tourists get washed away all the time. And there's so many deaths over there. So it's um and, and just the reef itself over here you know, in Sydney, we have like little platforms, and the the, the reefs that we surf they're, they're relatively safe in that respect. Like they're a flat platform. If you hit the bottom, you're going to bounce back up. But over in Hawaii, there's caves and holes you can get wedged into. So it just has so many crazy elements, you know. And the fact that it's probably the the most congested especially that time of the year through their winter season there is like a million of the, of the world's best waves best big wave service out of that spot which just makes it so hard to get a wave so you're always swinging late to try and you know paddling the one because someone hasn't got it so it's not like you're at your local beach where you're just sitting there you know having time to kill picking and choosing your wave paddling into it the way you want to it's always like hustle and bustle everyone's hustling to try and be in the spot and get and get that you know the best way of the day so it's uh, it can get pretty hectic you just said earlier, you know, it lit a fire under your ass. You come back to Australia and this is really where your, you know, desire and, you know, want to chase big swell kind of came from. 
Tasmania, Shipstone Bluff, probably at that stage was the most notorious big wave spot in Australia. Tell us about your first couple of trips down to Tassie. Yeah, I mean, it was just that sense of adventure too, you know, like slab surfing, that big wave surfing, it was just really starting to take off in Oz. Shipstones had just been discovered. You know, Mark Matthews, one of my best mates, and you know, Drew Courtney, Kieran Perry were the guys who really had that, that the first session that got that massive exposure. You know, it was, a, it was across every magazine throughout the world. Um, you know, and that, you know, it was in the middle of nowhere, you know, off the tip of Tassie, you know, off Port Arthur, you know, in front of this crazy big cliff face. Um, was one of the best waves in the world. It had this big step in it. It just had so many crazy elements. And, uh, you know, Mark had come back from that trip just frothing about it, saying, you've got to come check this wave. It's fucking crazy, blah, blah, blah. So I was just like, could not wait to get my opportunity to get down there. And, like, again, just travelling with your best mates to a place you've never been before to try and find this wave, you know, uh, and had the elements, you know, the forecast, the weather conditions all line up for you to get it. It was just, yeah, that, ele- that element of, of adventure was, was addictive and... My first trip down there, I was terrified. You know, I'd seen shots of it. I've seen what Mark had just surfed. You know, not long before the step. You know how how big the barrel is. Um, but yeah, you know, like I said, you sort of out there, your heart's in your throat. But you know, you're always willing to swing and paddle for one. And then once you do, regardless of the outcome, whether you make it or not, you know, unless you you know, <laughs> yeah, you pop up in one piece, you're like, all right, I either handle that, you know, and you made the way we did it. But you, you know, you're still in one piece, like. I'm good. I'll, I'm, I'm sweet to be out here. I'm, I want another one, yeah, and I want to make one. And that, that, you know, hunger or that, 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 the, uh, that element of trying to get the best way, the biggest barrel of your life, you know, it's, it's, um, it's something that just keeps you pulling back out. So, do you remember your first wave? Yeah, I did. I remember um, sort of just, yeah, it breaks really close to rocks, and you sit, and it steps up off this ledge. And then if you do make the initial drop, you got to line up that step and try and make that. And then the big end section where it just, you know, it just heaves and uh. Now the first one I got, I sort of made it. The drop was relatively easy because sometimes it can let you in easy. Sometimes you know, each way is totally different. And I uh, just saw that step coming, did my best to get off it. And it, was, it wasn't a huge one, but it just opened up on the end section and let me out in the channel. So I got spat out of my first one and that was just like, all right, fuck, that's done. Now, ships, my first wave of shit spin has been caught. I survived it. Now, and you're paddling back out going, I want a bigger one now because you're watching Kobe and Mark. Now they're all just sitting there and waiting for the biggest waves of the day. So you start to feel like, you know, I'm going to try and, you know, pinch one off them as well. And, um, but, you know, sometimes even sometimes the, the best start to a surf, shaking, surf session can be like falling on your first wave, getting flogged, popping up and going, fuck, the wor- like my worst fears just happened. I fell you know, at the bottom yeah, of a huge right. one of ship turns, but I popped up okay. So what, what can go wrong then? You know, that, that my worst fear just happened. I popped up sweet. So I'm back out there. And you, like, you got this newfound enthusiasm, new, newfound confidence all off the back of a wipeout, you know? So you're just like, all right, that's the worst. It's just happened to be. I'm just going to go hell for leather now and just get the best part of my life. Speaking of fear, mate, there's a place in West Australia which you've surfed called Cyclops or yeah. the right. Uh, it's a couple of k's off, off the coast down there in south southwest WA and notorious for sharks. When, when we're talking about fear, talk us through what it's like to surf that joint. Yeah, well, I mean, Cyclops is off of Esperance, which is just, I mean, it's not really in that much. It's not really, a, I couldn't even say it's a wave, you know. It's just a, a it looks amazing in footage and, and photos, but it's not a wave you go to to try and get good barrels or have a fun surf. It just, it breaks in absolutely bone dry water with, you know, barnacles you know, as big as your thumb sticking out of the rocks. It's sharky as, you know, just in the Esperance is an old abattoir, so you always hear these stories of, fucking monster great whites floating around there. You're in the middle of nowhere. You know, you've got to drive down the beach for Ks just to launch the boat and then you head out. So it's just uh, 
all these uneasy elements to it, you know, and, and um, the wave itself is so hard to ride, to ride. Like the percentage of actually making waves out there is like so small. You, you basically only go there to try and get photos and footage and, you know, say you surf the place. Yeah. Uh, um, but the right, which is further around the coast towards Albany, Denmark, that's natural, like, you know, an amazing wave. It's a wave that comes out of super deep water, though. But it's like a big bombore, you know, just it, it looks like it breaks in super shallow water, but it's actually still quite deep and it just offers you, like, probably some of the biggest barrels you'll see anywhere in the world. Um, so that's a wave that is actually has the potential to give you, you know, the ride of your life. But if you fall, it pushes you to what feels like the bottoms of the earth and, you know, two-wave hold downs are just common out there, you know. So that has a different element to Cyclops where at Cyclops you're worried about, you know, getting slammed on the reef and having to get scraped out of there, you know, in bits and pieces and you know, hopefully making the hospital in time. Um, over at the right, you're worried about making the surface, you know, before the second wave hits and, or before you black out. So, And then both have the element of sharks too. So that's just... Um, it's always spooky over there. The water's black and eerie, um, and, you know, there's these big fish beneath you all the time. So it's, it's nice to be out there with a few mates at least to sort of, like, spread the odds. Spread the odds. All right, so we've touched on Tassie, we've touched on WA. Now, the next place I want to touch on, the place that you probably, particularly from a Maroubra point of view, you're most famous for, is ours. Now, in the book, you're, you're quoted as saying that you, you're the one who called it ours. Is there any truth to that? And also... Tell us a bit about the background behind how you discovered it. Yeah, well, ours, you know, it's over at Cape Salander, just in the southern headland of Botany Bay. And just like, as I said, that, that slab surfing has just taken off in Australia and guys from Tassie or WA, everyone's trying to find the new, you know, biggest slab or the, you know, the new craziest wave. You know, we're starting to get whispers that these bodyboarders are surfing this, you know, this slab over on the southern headland of Botany Bay, which is only a stone's throw from Maroubra. Um, and I like, grew up at Little Bay. I always looked across the bay and seen waves break and smash up on the cliffs. But I was always been told that no, they're not waves. You know, they're they're waves that break right on rocks and they're not surfball and blah blah blah. So then we started hearing about these bodyboarder surfer and we started like do a bit of investigating work and saw a few photos and they actually like published the photos in magazines but flipped the image as a left. So they were doing all the best they could to sort of um, you know, smother it, keep it, yeah, yeah, and keep it undisclosed. And we've been having heaps of like beef with the bodyboarders at you know over at Voodoo and Suck Rock, and then at you know the Zone on the Central Coast. So we had this little healthy rivalry with the borderers. We were always bumping it, you know, bumping heads and having words exchanged and you know the odd fisty cuss every now and then because we were both all into surfing the same kind of waves. Um, and then you know obviously we found out they were surfing this wave right under our doorstep <laughs> that we hadn't found yet. Um, now eventually we did. We went over there on, on, on a a bit of a southeast spell and seen it break and actually saw a bunch of the bodyboarders in the car park. So we thought, oh, you know, here they are, this must be it. Um, so from then on, we started surfing it. And then, uh, you know, there, there was a few older cases in the water with the bodyboarders, but it, ours actually breaks on the same conditions as Shark Island does. And we used to surf Shark Island a lot. And that's where, the, I guess, the, not, you know, not the hatred, but I guess that kind of... Um, the rivalry. The, the rivalry with the bodyboarders eventually started because we were always getting arguments because we were all one of the best ways out there and there were so many of them and the, 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 the surfers always in the smaller numbers, especially on these slab waves. So we got this argument when we found out. I said, well, fuck off and go surf, you know, Shark Island. This is ours. And I, I said it and all my mates just laughed their tits off and it just, it just, you know, it just stuck. So the surfing media got hold of it. Um, the magazines ran it and you know, we, you know, calling this wave ours and you know because you know, we were the surf, first stand-up surfers to surf it so it just took off like wildfire and you know, i said it as a joke you know just to shit the bodyboarders um but it just stuck and you know that's pretty pretty funny how'd you go in the fight 
<laughs> it was wasn't much, but we were just uh, it was more sort of water splashing around and kicking. <laughs> they hard. My bodyboarders in the water, mate. They're they're, they're a tough one to fight because they kick up on their flippers and they pull your head under, mate. You want to try and get them on land if you can, but um, yeah, it was it was more like words being thrown back. It just it was a build up over like you know yeah, almost yeah, a couple of years of bumping into them at the Shark Island, bumping into them at you know at Suck Rock or the zone. So it was always yeah, that tension was building. So when we finally found you know, the way of the hours that they've been surfing. Um, you know, words were words were exchanged and and they were happy to keep Shark Island and we wouldn't bother them over there and we just kept ours. So it was uh, you know I get on with all of them now. You know, but at the time there was a bit of a pretty fierce um, kind of you know, we dug our heels and said, nah, this is it." So we're going to touch on the competition this year that uh, was held by you know your great friend and uh, you know one of your best mates, Mark Matthews, who you're synonymous with the crew and growing up down the river with Big Wave Surf, you spent your whole life with him. That competition's held, uh, you know, when the conditions are good and they made a decision to go ahead this year. Some of the biggest waves when we had that swell earlier in the year was just incredible. Some of the footage, I was talking to the water safety guy, Wally Dobro, who you probably know, you know, yep. a while, and uh, he just said to me, mate, I've never seen anything like it. He said, I've been in surf clubs my whole life. I've been in water safety. He was the watch guy. He had Dino and, uh, and, and Whippet as Whippet, swimmers. Yeah. Um, you guys, some of the wipeouts you had, can you just talk us through what goes through your head when you're coming into a wave. And how house. big was it too? Yes. Mate, it was huge and I agree. Well, like, I'd never seen conditions like that ever. Um, never, like, I've been surfing that wave since early 2000, 2001. So, you know, 15, 16 years now. Never seen a break like that. Uh, so to get those conditions and coincide with the Red Bull Cape Fear event, it was just phenomenal, you know. And uh, it, it was amazing. It was it was just the best spectacle I've ever seen. And, you know, I was shitting myself out there, you know, and then when it was my turn on the back of the rope getting whipped in the ones, obviously... You want the biggest one you can. You're trying to get through a heat. You know you want to win the contest, um, but you're seeing waves explode just meters in front of cliffs. And um, we we're actually second here the day on the Monday. And Jughead, Justin Allport from the Central Coast, he just went out there and went bonkers. Like he was the only guy on the cliffs who was generally like just chomping at the bit to get out there. Everyone else was like, "Oh fuck, it's pretty hectic," and I don't know about this and that. He was just like running around in a panic because he wasn't out there surfing already. You know, he went out there and went nuts and just set the bar so high. Just you know, just taken off on the biggest, scariest waves out there. Eventually went down on one, got smashed against the cliffs and got a big hole in his head and got dragged past us on the on the back of the uh, jet ski on the sled with the you know the water safety. He had a big hole in his head. He was in Gargo land. It was a little bit of an eerie start to our heat. But um, Rooster Adams also got a 10 that, in that heat as well. So it was like that. You, know, you could see the, the risk and the reward were both you know, you know definitely shown that first heat. So grab the, grab the rope yourself. And it's just, for me, it's not much of a, thought process the less i think about it the better i surf you know if i start thinking about everything that's going on and you know what happens if i don't make it or what can go wrong you you, you kind of spin out and uh you know you hesitate you panic and it's just about holding the right picking the right way trying to pick the right line you know letting go where you should let go and doing your best to make the wave because it's by that time it's all instinctual you know the thought process i don't think it helps you at that stage yeah nice but uh there is a photo of you and everyone knows what happens next you can just tell what's going to happen just from the photo can you yeah. tell us what happened? It was a massive, massive wave. It had levels and platforms and whatever, you know, uh, you could throw at you. The variables were just intense. The, the, the cliff face wasn't too far away. The white water was like a mountain. You could ski down in Perisher. What happened next? Yeah, mate, it was just one of those um, Cape Salander lobsters, you know, just <laughs> popped up the leafy board. So I thought I'd, uh, I'd do my best to jump down and grab him. No, <laughs> it was, uh, look, it was towards the end of the heat and, uh, I hadn't made any waves, so I wasn't getting through the heat. So I was just thinking, I've got to get an easy, you know, just a makeable wave. I need one. But the waves, like I said, I've never seen that big out there, and I've never seen it do what it was doing. So 
where I normally let go or that wasn't working, then you know you see some massive sets come through and they kind of cap off the back of the reef and you let them go. But then they set the scale out all out, all out of whack. So anything that wasn't 15 foot and capping off the back of the reef, you thought was a small wave that you could, you know, like a six footer, you get an easy one on, get a good score and hopefully make it through the heat. And that's what I thought happened on this wave. I thought a smaller one, yeah, let's go. I, I um, told Hippo who was driving the ski to, you know, let's go this one, let go of the rope where I normally let go of the rope. Um, felt like I had a great line coming into it, but then all of a sudden I got to the bottom and there was just troughs and steps and gutters. could see the reef popping out almost in front of me and uh, I knew just out of the peripheral of my eyesight that lip was just above my head and I went off a step, my board just got buried in the water and um, I thought it was you know, about time to try and get out of there the best way possible and try to penetrate and get under it. And Yeah, the photo, I had no idea it looked as bad as it did until I looked at, back at the photo. But um, yeah, I definitely came in touch and was you know, pretty thankful to come out in one piece and I got flogged but not too bad. You're expecting, uh, with your lovely wife, Lachie, you're expecting your first child. Is that something you'll stick on the wall at home? Because it's a pretty cool shot. <laughs> yeah, look. Um, yeah, I wouldn't mind having a photo on the wall of me on my feet, actually making a wave <laughs> once. I've seen, it, I've seen it, all my, you know, my most uh, my published photos have all been me on cartwheels or upside down. So, so I wouldn't like me, uh, my either son or daughter, look at their dad you know, actually staying on their feet for once. But uh, look, like I said, that, that photo kind of went a bit viral and, yeah, I'm just really glad to come out of that. That's just the whole contest in one piece. I'm glad that everyone else did as well. You know, yeah, Judd sure. got a bit of a knock on the head, but he was sweet. He was there back there the next day supporting all the surfers. And, and for given for what the contest was, the conditions that we, we got for it, I'm um, just, yeah, really thankful that, you know, hats off to the water safety, you know, Pro Garden. They did an amazing effort keeping us all safe. Mark Matthews, Ryan Hitwood, guys from Red Bull who put on the event, phenomenal job. And uh, all the competitors too, you know, everyone went out there and went gangbusters and put on a, you know, an awesome spectacle. Well, we've touched on Richie Vass, the larrikin. We've touched on Richie Vass, the surfer. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, I'm going to talk about Richie Vass, the fighter. You're on a cure for baldness with Silky Bush and special guest Richie Vass. If you need your office spick and span, your carpets cleaned, your toilets glam, or your plumbing checked by a maintenance man, call Fit Services. If your outdoors, too, have been neglected, your car park needs painting, your garden's protected, your pathway's swept, or a new fence erected, Call Fit Services. Maybe you need something built brand new. An office refurbishment, an extension or two, or an AC system with ducting right through. Call Fit Services. Fit Services. Quality services, second to none. Call 1-300-011-011. Well, welcome back to a Cure for Baldness. We're having a ball in it tonight, Silky. I've got to tell you, this is one of my favourites so far. Yeah, no, it's been good. Uh, you know, well, it's a good story. You know, not everyone can say they've jumped in the ring and, you know, punched the shit out of someone or, you know, had the shit punched out of them, served 20-foot waves, almost drowned. You know, there's a, Been it, hurled there's up a lot the, to like about this story. And then just bagged their best mate for their whole life for leaving his 6'6 new board just out there somewhere at ours. Ah, I can't believe it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Foxy. Well, we're with Richie Vass, as you know, and uh, he's our special guest on A Cure for Boredness with Silky and Bush, powered by radiohub.com.au. We've done, uh, I suppose, the larrikin chapter. We've done the surfer chapter. Uh, now we're going to touch on the fighter. And you're right, Silky, not many people that I know can say they have achieved so much so far. At 33 years of age, Richie, mate, uh, well, you didn't start when you were 33. You're there now. But, uh, mate, where did the fighting game come from? And where did you just get interested? You surf Five minutes ago, you're surfing 20-foot waves. Mate, sign some autographs and get out of here. <laughs> Call an Uber. Now... We're going to talk about the fighting chapter of your life. Where did it begin? 
Mate, I, I guess it was kind of similar to why you know I wanted to pal out when the waves are big. You know, you know even though I shit myself, uh, I guess it was that small man syndrome kicking in. Like I didn't want to be the guy left on the beach looking like he was too scared to pal out. Um, so, you know, when it came to fighting, I always was a smart ass growing up. You know, as a kid, I, my mouth got me into trouble and I was always a smallest in me, you know, at school, smallest in me footy side. Um, but when, like, you know, we sort of exchanged words, I always thought I could I could handle myself like the rest of the guys or I could hold my own. Um, and that's what, you know, got me into a, a couple of fisticuffs as, you know, as a young fellow and, and uh, had a pretty ordinary record, you know, as a young <laughs> bloke. But but I um, always thought, like, you know, I could. And then getting in my teens, obviously, that peer pressure and that growing up, you know, thinking you become a man you always wanted to sh- uh, you know, show that you're never shy from a fight or you know all that kind of stuff especially down Ruby you know there's so many older blokes who were the professional boxers like Ronnie Reardon or just guys who could handle themselves you know like Jack Kingsley Johnny Gannon the Abram brothers all these guys who um, you know were just you know you just looked up to because that they, they could handle themselves in any situation and that kind of encouraged me to to learn boxing or you know or, or stay fit and active or and, and train so um, you know, I thought you know if what it happens as growing up as a young kid at parties, you know, that you could, uh, you know, you could sort of handle yourself. So I guess there's a whole bunch of elements, you know what I mean? That, I guess that competitive nature too that I wanted to, um, you know, you know, learn a new sport too. And, and then, yeah, I, I do want to be as a kid, you know, running away from a fight looking like he was scared too. Like I think every young bloke, you know, uh, has those feelings and, yeah, whether it's a smart decision or not, um, you know, I found myself getting a little bit of mischief. You feature heavily in, um, you know, in, in Fighting Fear and, and even in the Bravo movie. Um, you know, there was Mark's 21st. Is there any memorable stinks before, you know, the fight game took off for you? Like, is there anything that you look back on and go, geez, I was good there, or that made me think, oh, I actually go, right, I know you're, you're, you're a, s- a smaller man, so you've always said you had a little bit of that small man syndrome. Is that part of it, or? Yeah, to be honest, like, looking back, I wish I had, you know, the head on my shoulders that you know, I do now, back then, because, you know, I, I now know no, nothing good comes of fighting on the street or, or out, outside the ring. Is like, and, I, and I try to tell young fellas that I work with now, you know, I do some, a program at the PCYC that, you know, that nothing good comes of it, but it's so hard to convince young fellas unless they actually walk through that and make the mistakes and, you know, see the other side of it, you know. But, um, yeah, so not really, mate, not really, like, there's nothing that I was so much looking back on before I took fighting seriously and made a profession out that I was real proud of. You know, I, I dig in that that kind of um, more sort of publicised uh, altercation that could you rank RSL with the off-duty police officers for Mark Matthews 21st. That, um, you know, I guess I played a little part in that, trying to jump into a crowd of, crowd of lift and not didn't realise that there's always off-duty police officers at the back of the lift who, um, you know, Took took uh, you know a bit of offence to it, and that's how the whole kind of situation started. But yeah, the majority of it all was just you know on the piss, being a goose, and uh, carrying like a knucklehead. So yeah, the, the my more memorable fights actually yeah occurred inside the octagon. Mate, how close were you to going to jail? Once upon a time, there was a photo of you when you got shackled and uh, sent to Queensland. Obviously, probably a, a bit of a watershed moment in, in your life. You know, tell us a little bit about that story. Yeah, that's a huge moment, and like for as you know, shitty as it was and what I put my family through, you know, all the people involved, the victim, their family, um, you know, it's a moment I'm really not proud of, but it happened at a time which I really I really needed you know, a wake-up call and a kick up the ass, and I was just starting to get involved in mixed martial arts. Um, you know, but coming from a surfing background, then there was never that discipline or, you know, that guidance really that, you know, that, that mixed martial arts provided, you know. So um, that happened where, you know, it, it could have gone either way. It was that fork in the road moment where, you know, I was up in the Gold Coast. Mick Fanning had just won his uh, first world title. I was on the piss with all my mates up there, got in an argument uh, inside a pub uh, and just went outside with these bunch of blokes to have a knuckle and just, you know, 
something that as a young fella you never think twice about. You know, now obviously I'd obviously walk away from a situation like that, but at the time it was all about never matter. You know, you know, it was always go hard or go home. You know, in, in any element of life, and that that was great when you're surfing big waves or when you're stepping inside the cage, but not when you're having a beer at the pub. You know, and uh, so I went outside, got into a fight. Uh, got kind of towed up, got uh, slippered, and as I got back to my feet, um, I whacked the guy who I thought slippered me. Um, yeah, months later, I ex- ex- back to Queensland to face face the music. You know, he uh, got a pretty badly broken jaw and had to face uh, you know, grievous bodily harm charges. So that was a wake-up call where I was like, I can't keep on going out, get on the piss every weekend, carrying on thinking nothing will have consequences, you know, getting in the fights and thinking nothing will ever come of it. That was like the, the, the big you know, wake-up call there. It cost me, you know, all my savings to pay for lawyers to try and you know, um, you know go through the courts and kind of made me just refocus on what it was I was passionate about and that was you know surfing and fighting in mixed martial arts. So as horrible as that whole experience was, it um it kind of set me on a new trajectory which I was you know very grateful for now and thinking yeah had I not learned those lessons then um I'm not sure when I would learn them. So the lessons that whole that 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 whole situation taught me uh, I'm very grateful for now even though it was pretty ordinary going through it it was a uh, it was definitely needed so was look it, back on that without kind of was there a time grateful. where you thought you were going to go to jail because I, I mean growing up you you've you visited plenty of blokes in the nick you know and for anyone who's never been there's nothing good about you know visiting people inside but did, was there a you know in the back of your mind was there an inkling or was, you know was there ever a thought that shit I might I might actually get locked up yeah, but there definitely was, mate. There, um, the media grabbed hold of the whole story and, um, you know, gave some exposure, packed me out like you know, just a mug. Thug, which, yeah. you know, which, you know, of course, I'm not. I, like, I was carrying like a mug at the time, you know. But uh, they probably because the Bravo's doco had just come out, they knew that I fought mixed martial arts. They probably ran with that a little bit more. Um, I was no angel, but um, that kind of played into the you know the the police who were prosecuting me. They really wanted to, you know charge me and, and get the, the maximum charge they could so i knew that i was up against it you know um i was very fortunate the judge saw it for what it was and then the actual victim he actually said that he you know he watched the fight he was mates with the guys that i was having a fight with um he watched me get slipped and then he obviously said he got up and then and richie hit me and uh so the judge you know sort of was there were two drunk blokes just um you know being idiots and, and you know, i got lucky that i pled guilty to a lesser charge and and, and there's no conviction recorded which wouldn't prevent me from traveling and you know really affect my career later down the path so um yeah it was just you know, a, a time where yeah it, it, look you say everything happens for a reason that they'll cliche but i really think it applies to this you know, in, yeah. in this case for sure maps it out Mate, um, you know, that being a turning point, you're always trained, though, like you're trained to get fit and stay fit um, at the Abedham's grandmother's house, Ma, you know, you guys always boxed. Can you talk us through that time and then getting a bit more serious with, you know, guys like Johnny Gannon, another big influence from Ruben, great set of lips. <laughs> awesome lips. Yeah, it, it was true. Like, again, Kobe was just, he was all about fitness. You know, he wanted to be as fit as a fiddle for when it came to surfing big ways. He didn't party, he ate well. Um you know, yeah, got guys like Ronnie Reardon who were fighting for Australian titles down at the beach. Uh, Johnny Gannon, who was all about fitness and like Iron know, Man, yeah, and Iron Man. So Jack Kingsley, Mark Matthews, guys who always pride themselves on being fit, being able to handle themselves. If you know, if, if she did at the fan. So uh, myself and my mates at my age, uh, Evan Rooster, all the boys, Skeeny. Um, now we always loved to train as well. We hit the pads in the backyard up at Mars, and then we you know we put the gloves on, have a bit of a spa. Uh, we had Jimmy Olsen who fought professionally too as a boxer. Um, Big Bitch. Under the name of Peter. Peter Olsen. <laughs> so we had so many guys like, uh, you know, uh, willing to help us out and teach us the pads and stuff. And we, we just took to it like, you know, 
ducks to water. We love that again, that competitive edge, trying to like outdo each other. Um, and, and and it was a lot of fun. And then not long after that, you know, Sunny Avenue was going out with a Brazilian girl called Arena, and then that's how we we met all the Brazilians at the beach. You know, Bruno Pano, Alex Pratt's. Um, and they introduced, they were you know, they brought jiu-jitsu to Maroubra and introduced us to the world of Brazilian jiu-jitsu, which, again, it was just that competitive element. It was, it was physical. We, you know, in, in no time, we are all putting each other to sleep at the pub, and um, I, I was hooked on that and started competing in that as well, and uh, along with all your mates. So it was uh, it was really fun. Like, it was as much as it was, like, practical. You're learning to, to, to fit and learning a skill, whether it be boxing or, or uh, BJJ, but you're just spending time with your mates again. So, um yeah, it all sort of kicked off at, you know, at a really good time for me because I started to really fall in love with it. I think one thing about BJJ that for people who've never Can you explain what tried BJJ it, is? Brazilian, because in America it means something completely different. <laughs> Brazilian jiu-jitsu, is a, it's like it's a mental chess as well. Like for every move, there's a counter move. And for, for, if you've ever tried it, it's, it is highly addictive because as, as Richie was saying, you go home and you've learned something new and you can't wait to try it on someone. Yeah, and so, and for the fact in that you're learning it with your bunch of mates. So yeah. like... If if you, you you miss a session, you know my mate Ev will learn a, a new armbar, and you'll catch me <laughs> the next week. So like that's what made me keep coming every week, and I didn't miss a session because you know Jimmy Olsen, Sonny, Jack, all the boys were learning, uh, you know this new form of martial art, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, and it was so effective, you know, like we were in the pub wrestling and all my mates who weren't doing Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, I could put them to sleep in two seconds. So it was, uh, not only was it fun and keeping you fit, but it was practical and, and then we started competing in the, you know, in the tournaments and, and we we're doing pretty well too. So it just, uh, it was awesome. And, and like I said, it introduced that, that kind of routine, that discipline, that guidance that, you know, at that age I really lacked and, um, you know, I was very fortunate to, to have introduced into my life when it, when it did. So whilst you're, Honing your craft, you know, going through the belts in in BJJ, mixed martial arts or MMA was was not really a, a big thing the way it is now. You know, with the UFC, how did you go from being you know a, a BJJ wrestler into mixed martial arts? Yeah, like you now the UFC, we had just started to hear uh, hear about here in Australia. You now we've seen the first the VHS tapes, and we'd all seen those first early UFC days. Um, and the sport was very much like it still is in its, in its infancy now, but back then it was you know it was unheard of, and there's only a few small select shows around Oz. Um, many states had laws against it, so Queensland was one of the only places you could go and um, compete in mixed martial arts and allowed it inside the cage. Um, yeah, and luckily for me, a guy called Ian Schaefer who trained with us was fighting in Japan. He was like one of the biggest names in Australian MMA, uh, and to see him train, to see him do well, and to to have him like train with us and like, you know, give us tips and help us out. Um, it, it kind of planned to see that, you know, I wouldn't mind trying my hand at this. Now I love boxing. I love BJJ. And to me, that's all mixed martial arts was at the time. You know, I can, I can box while I'm standing. If it goes to the mat, you know, I can grapple and try and submit people. So I thought, all right. And I, and I started express interest with Bruno, my coach and Alex. You now I wouldn't mind trying my hand at this. Uh, with no idea or, or you know, expectation that I'll make a career out of it or, or I'll like it. For all I knew, I might freeze up, shit myself and get the shit punched out of me and that would be it. Um, but start express interest and that's how I, I, I eventually had my first fight. You know, I had to fly to Calandra. I told my mum I was going for a surf trip. <laughs> uh, but I went up there and had my first mixed martial arts fight and uh, you know, I surprised myself and got a first round knockout and kind of was, was hooked on that buzz, you know. It was that adrenaline that I'd, I'd always loved. Uh, I loved the training. I loved the discipline. I love the, that that lifestyle change that it brought on as well, and um, yeah, from there on, I thought, all right, well, I'd love to try it again. Again, no, no big goals of of making a career, but just 
I like to have that experience again. I like to walk in and compete in this sport once more and just once more led to another. And opportunities start presenting themselves and that's how the, the snowball began. So at what stage did you, you know, decide, you know, shit, I, I go all right at this. I, I want to make a career out of it. Yeah, well, you know, for my first couple of fights, I, uh, I had two knockouts and a submission and um, you know, it was a little bit of a buzz that, you know, there's this little waxhead kid, you know, getting into mixed martial arts and doing pretty well because... You know, the sport was young and, and the guys who were doing well in the sport had always come from a martial arts background. Um, so pres- opportunities started presenting themselves and then the CFC were probably the biggest promotion in Australia at the time. Uh, they were doing shows at Luna Park at the Big Top and they had just started to create belts in their promotion and they wanted to do a Bantamweight uh, belt, uh, which is 62 kilos, which was the weight that I was fighting at um, and they wanted me to contest for the belt. So you know, I did my fourth fight and my fifth fight I... I ended up finding a guy called Gustavo Falsaroli, a Brazilian guy, a black belt in jiu-jitsu. I had a ton of experience before in Japan and stuff. So to give him that opportunity so early in my career, I was just, you know, over the moon. And at the time, I was still laying carpet, you know, five, six days a week and training in the afternoons after that. Um, so I, I was loving the sport, but, you know, it was just a hobby of mine, you know. And then it wasn't until I had that fight, which went five rounds, and I lost a decision uh, to Gustavo um, that made me realise, you know, I, I like this and I, I can do well. I just hung in there, you know, and had a competitive fight for, you know, 25 minutes with a guy who just won, you know, the, the biggest title in Australia. Um, yeah, that, that gave me the realisation if I was to focus more on this, I could uh, maybe make a go of it. So it wasn't long after that. I put the tools down uh, in terms of, like, subcontracting. I wasn't working five days a week anymore uh, and just started to focus on my training and my surfing, you know. Like, at the same time, they, I think they complement each other really well and uh, that's where I really started to focus in on mixed martial arts. How close were you looking back on that fight to um, winning on points? Was it, it was a pretty close fight. Yeah, it was close, but he, he definitely won most of the rounds. You know, he um, yeah, I was expecting. I, I leading up to that fight, there was no doubt in my mind that I was going to go in there, and knock him out, and, and get the win. I, I knew that he was a Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt, and that I wanted to keep it standing, and he was he wanted to get it to the mat. But in the first, in the opening round, he clipped me with a nice knee in the clinch um, and put me on my bum. I survived the first round, but you know I was a little bit scattered after that, and then. Um, you know, it was, a, it was a pretty close fight, but I remember sitting I think, is it after the fourth round, going to the very last round of the fight, and I'm arguing with my corner and my coaches that, no, we're going in the round three, and they go, no, Richie, it's round five. So after getting dropped in the first, I was kind of on autopilot the rest of the fight, and Gustavo was just too well experienced, uh, you know, to let me off the hook. And, yeah, he, he won the majority of the rounds and, um, you know, and stole the title. So it was, I was gutted, you know, at the time for sure because I'd never sort of contemplated losing the fight. But the fact, you know, everyone came up to me after it saying how entertained they were by the fight and what a great performance it was and being so early in my career, kind of like eased the blow a little bit um, and, and, and again, my, sort of lit the fire. That, and got the attention of the UFC. Yeah, exactly. Now, that, that fight got a – it did get you know, a lot of recognition. Um, and, yeah, again, like even though I was gutted with the loss, I was kind of proud of my performance. I dug deep in some pretty uh, you know, bad situations and made, made you know, managed to fight my way out of them. Uh, and survive and then yeah i thought that was a huge learning experience now that opened the world to me the, my eyes to the the world of mixed martial arts and there's a lot more to it than just boxing and, and bjj you know you know so i started to incorporate all the different elements you know, wrestling kickboxing all the other strength and conditioning that's where i stopped laying carpet for, you know five days a week start to incorporate all those other elements of training you know which are involved in mixed martial arts and uh yeah and that's where i started to really make a go of it Tell us about your time in the Ultimate Fighter House. You, you know, you you were a band weight. You were just telling us that, but you had to go up two weight classes just to qualify. Yeah, um, you know, when I first started mixed martial arts, getting 
to the UFC. It was just, you know, it was just a dream. It was never really it could be a reality. Uh, for one, you know, being down the arse end, you know, the world here in Australia and the UFC being predominantly in the States, it was just so out of this world to try and fight your way uh, over there. And, and the fact that there were no weight classes from 70 kilos and below at that stage, um, yeah, it just wasn't really like, you know, a, 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 f- a feasible goal until, you know, they did introduce my weight classes and then they brought the ultimate fighter to Australia and they were looking for a team of Australian fighters to take on a team of UK fighters and they called it the Smashers. Um, and we found out that you know the, the two weight classes that they were going for were the 70 kilo weight divisions as a lightweight and the 77 kilo divisions, uh, which is welterweight. And I just thought this is too big opportunity to miss, even though I've never fought at 70 kilos. I only ever fought at 62 and 66. Uh, I couldn't let this opportunity slip, so I, I tried out. I auditioned. Um, I went to all the physicals. I, I, you know, I sparred guys. I grappled guys. Uh, I did pretty well. I did well in, you know, on the rest of the, the auditions, and um, I got a start as a lightweight. And um, I was over the moon and went into the house, proudest punch to be representing my country. And you know, the whole goal was to go in there, get a couple of wins, and get that UFC contract. But it didn't go, you know, my way. I did get the results I was hoping in the house, but um, you know, I was hoping that my my performance. Given the fact that I was fighting out of my weight classes was enough to put my name, you know, at least on the radar of the UFC, um, uh, which it did. Uh, and then I went out, uh, out from the house, um, kept fighting outside of the UFC, got a few more impressive wins, won a few titles here in Oz. And then the UFC called and said, we'll like you, you know, as a flyweight, which is 57 kilos, uh, which was a division they were trying to develop and, and build. So I was over the moon, you know, that the, the UFC was always the ultimate goal uh, for any mixed martial artist, I, I believe it is. Um, and I've been working so hard to get there to finally get that phone call was, uh, you know, was was sensational. So and yeah. not just get the phone call. We talked about in the last chapter having that photo of you surfing. You said you'd love to get one for your son or daughter standing on your feet. What they can't take away from you is you are the first at that weight in Australia to get a UFC contract. Yeah, you know that was something you know, I'm, I'm I'm super proud of. You know, I was the first fighter under 70 kilos actually to be signed <coughs> by the UFC. So. Um, you know, I've fought from 57 through to 70 kilos, all the all the divisions in between. So to be the first flyweight to be signed to the UFC was something pretty uh, special. And uh, it's been an awesome journey and uh, it's pretty tough getting down to 57 kilos, but uh, it was well worth it. Talk us through the pressure of the UFC. It's now a juggernaut. It just got sold for a ridiculous amount of money, a couple of billion. Four billion, I think couple it was. Of billion yeah. dollars. It was the biggest sporting sale in history. Yeah. You know? And, you know, everyone sort of, you know, a lot of people don't really, uh, you know, don't understand it and, and the... And the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle to go into the mixed martial arts, you know, the kickboxing, the boxing, the strength and conditioning, the Brazilian, Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Yeah. And you can go all day. There's the all craft. the tra- traditional judo, yeah. judo, karate, taekwondo. Yeah. There's so many sambo that's big in Russia. I mean, yep. it is really open to all combat sports out there. Um, Did you feel the pressure? Oh yeah, definitely. Now it's the world stage. Now this is what you dreamt for. This is you know, this is now where you want to put your best performance in, and you know, and start to win the fights and get those accolades and make your way deep into the UFC and you know, into the top ten of your division. So yeah, there's huge pressure there. You know, now all eyes are on you. You're not you're not fighting an RSL club anymore where yeah. you can hear crickets in between fights. You know, it's just, this is the world stage, and um, you know, this is where I wanted to perform. So I, I really focus hard and train hard for it. Um, that was amazing. So. It was uh, it was tough though, you know. You're facing the best fighters in the world from all around the world, um, 
So there's no easy fights? No. How, how are you placed in the UFC as we currently stand? So I fought last year in Melbourne on that Ronda Rousey Holly Home card. Yes. And I lost a fight and decision. And that was my second loss in a row. And since then, I've been released by the UFC. So I'm still fighting, but I'm no longer contracted to the UFC. Uh, I've gone back up in a weight class, back to bantamweight at 62 kilos. And the plan is to fight my way back into the UFC as a, as a bantamweight fighter. At 33 years of age, how much fight time... You know, you look at uh, rugby leagues, a sport that comes to mind for us that we're all got synonymous with. That's probably getting towards the end of a career for someone who's doing uh, combat sports or physical activity. How far do you think you can take your body with what you've been through um, in UFC? Yeah, look, it's all, it comes down, I think, just a couple of things, mate, with the heart and mind is in it and the body holds together. You know, um, you, you can go up until into your 40s, you know, Mark Hunt. You know, one of the biggest fighters here in Australia is 42. Did you say that again, please? <laughs> <laughs> now, Danny Green recently fought. You know, he's, a, he's a big idol of mine. Now, he's in his 40s too. So uh, these guys out there doing it. So there's no reason why you can't. There's no there's no cutoff age where you just you simply can't fight anymore. It's just if, you, if your mind and your heart's in it and, and the body's holding together. Um, I think I've been pretty fortunate in, in my surfing and fighting career. Now, I've had a few injuries, but, uh, you know, given it all, I think I've got it pretty well and, um, now the hunger's still there. I'm still. I'm going out to Brisbane to corner um, a training partner of mine, Jules the Jackal, this weekend. So training with him and Mark Baskin, Rory O'Connell, all my training partners who got fights coming up has been phenomenal. And, and definitely, um, you know, the the, the hunger's still there uh, to train hard and and to fight. That, that competitive edge is still there. I was in the states earlier this year, training in some of the best gyms over there, and uh, definitely, you know, felt I held my own. And, and that was another sort of realization that you know I've still got a, a, a bit of time left. So. Um, it's, it's all, don't you? I think you take it year by year, fight by fight, um, you know, and, and see how things go. But there's definitely no cut off as to I've never set myself all right, 35 and I'm done or anything like that. Yep. It's just if that itch is there, I'm going to keep scratching. I think you're on a cure for baldness with our special guest, Richie Vass. Back in a sec. Well, welcome back to a cure for baldness, and uh. Silky, I'll tell you what, and, and yourself, Richie, there's a real common thread in this next chapter. We've heard Richie the Larrikin. We've heard about Richie the Surfer. We just touched heavily on uh, Richie the Fighter, you know, and all this is in your book, but outside of the book and inside the book, there is a common, common thread, and that thread is mateship and family. And I've got a sneaky suspicion that without those two things, those three chapters wouldn't have come about whatsoever. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, no, I was... They're very fortunate to have you know, a very good um, you know, home life and upbringing. You know, my parents split when I was when I was pretty young, but had great parents. Um, and you know, when I grew up down the beach, and I was getting all the other influences, which was great for many aspects of my career. When you know, I got into a bit of mischief and got a bit of strife and had to go to court. It was kind of that uh, that those home values and that, that upbringing at home that really sort of you know made me decide like now. This isn't the way I want to, you know, be remembered, or the, or the the way I want to continue. So it really helped me sort of refocus on what it was I wanted to do in life. And um, those two elements, mateship and friends and family, have been huge. Um, yeah, like, you know, mates like Mark Matthews and uh, and Macca have, um, you know, have always influenced me. Without sitting me down lecturing and, and they tell me, you know, I'm, I'm a dickhead, pull my head in, but just leading by example, doing what they're doing in their own careers. Um, now. Really influenced me heavily, and I've had a, you know, the best bunch of mates to make anyone could ask for. And family um, have always been there as well, so I've been very fortunate in, in, in both those. Richie, touching on mateship, and particularly Mark and Macca, you know, you, you guys have had some some 
Richie, touching on, on your mateship between yourself, Mark, and Mackie, you know, you've created a, a, a series together, you've travelled the world together. Just let us in, uh, give us a bit of insight into this bond that you have with the, these two guys. Yeah, look, um, now I went to high school with Mackie since he was seven. He was this little wild kid from Hillsdale who loved his soccer, and I was a little waxhead from Aruba, and but we we're just very similar in many respects, and we, you know, we both like to be the class clan, and we kind of just clicked from, from day one in year seven, and before long, he was hanging down the beach. He, he loved surfing, and you know, we were, we were just being great mates ever since. And Mark, he was just someone I always looked up to. He's a, he's a year older than me, and um, you know, through surfing and growing up on the beach and chasing waves together and doing contests, we've just created an amazing you know, mateship. And, and um, you know, that's all kind of galvanised throughout the crew that we did together. And you now I just feel, you know, just the lucky sort of post drunk carpet layer to tag along with these these two guys who are super creative. You know, Macker with his music and his filmmaking. Mark with his crazy ideas like the night shoot at ours, uh, the Red Bull Cape Fear event, um, and just what he does, you know, with his own surfing and, and corporate speaking, all that kind of stuff. Um, I, I'm just, I just tag along and just so fortunate to be part of these these things that these two guys sort of come up with. Um, you know, the, the crew was amazing. We did three seasons of the crew. Um, the the last season it was the crew generation two. We had uh, three young musicians, three young surfers, three young fighters involved. Uh, which was super rewarding to be a part of and um, you know, see, see, sort of give back a little bit um, you know, as we get older and trying to help people you know, exactly how we were, you know, maybe 10 years earlier, um, striving for the same goal. So, yeah, Mark and Mac have been a huge influence on my life. You know, when I was, you know, mucking up and getting a bit of trouble, they um, they would definitely help me get back on the right track just by achieving what they were achieving in, in their own fields. Um, kind of gave me... You kick out the bum and go, look, Mark and Mac are doing what they've set themselves, you know, they're doing what they love to do, kind of made me think, oh, I want to take fighting seriously and take surfing seriously. So um, they're always there, mate, for, for a, you know, a bit of advice and when things aren't going well to, to bounce bounce things off. So, yeah, very fortunate. And, uh, yeah, it, it goes, um, yeah, it's a testament to, to the guys. We've been best mates since our early teens, so it's been great. And what about some of your other friends? You know, you've touched on Ev and Rooster and... I know uh, another another dear friend of yours is no longer with us, Pornos. What have they done to kind of, you know, mould you into the person you are today? Um, yeah, mate, everything. You know, I think I think I'm hugely a product of my environment, you know, and those guys are the you know, the guys who helped shape me just from always having that competitive edge when I was a kid, whether it be jujitsu, surfing, partying, whatever it may be, I was always competing with Evan Rooster and, you know, having a having a ball doing it. Um you know, some of my fondest, you know, best memories, and still today, just going hanging out with mates and you know getting up to no good, and um, now and pawns, you know, he was a, a very dear friend of ours who dealt with a, a few uh, issues. He came out, you know, he'd been a bra boy his life, came out when he was around thirty years old and said he was gay, and um, you know, then obviously dealt with a lot of depression and stuff, um, and then you know, very sadly took his own life. So that was something that none of us saw coming. Uh, he was just so, uh, just an absolute an amazing energy, large and life character, the best guy to be around that you know I've ever met. So yeah, just um, yeah, that 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 kind of stuff really you know, sticks with you and just opens your eyes to to things and um, that just makes you really just look back and feel how fortunate we were to have him in our lives. Um, yeah, but it's very sad not having him here you know, here today. But yeah, just been I've been blessed with the uh, you know the mates and family that you know I've been so lucky to be surrounded with over these years and. Uh, they've definitely had a huge part in, um, you know, shaping who I am today, and the reason why, you know, I've had any, any success is, uh, you know, it's, it's a lot of it's been wanting to, um, you know, make my friends and family proud. 
mates, uh, you know, a common thread as well as the Abaddon brothers, all three, you know, Kobe, Jai, Sonny, you know, even Dakota as a young kid, you know, probably a mentor to him. But uh, talk us through your relationship and the influence that the Abaddons have been on you and Maroubra. Oh, huge, huge. Um, now they were very much uh, kind of lead by example kind of guys. Uh, you know, Jai gave me his old surfer when I was a grommet, you know, when I was 12, he gave me a board to ride to just little things like that. Kobe constantly gave me wetsuits and boards. Sunny introduced me to, you know, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. I hang out with Dakota now, you know, he, he lays carpet and he's always surfing out at hours and stuff. So they're just, uh, yeah, just, just a great bunch. Of, and like I said, always, always led by example, whether it be in the surf, you know, in the pub, on the streets, they always, um, kind of, yeah, led the way and, uh, very fortunate again to, to have those guys like in my life to, to look up to and, and you know it was um i guess there were elements that you know that i had to sort of make decisions and they thank god that through my you know, my upbringing at home that you know i didn't take all of Kobe's advice you know what i mean if you, if you believe everything you said i would have found myself in a lot more trouble i believe but uh it was to take their message and apply it in the right environment. Um, you know, it worked wonders. So I, I was very fortunate to, to have them and, and push me into things I love doing. Next two blokes that are synonymous right across the years and service and somewhat a mentor to, to Silky and I as well. Um, they won't like it. It's probably gone youngest to oldest when they listen back to this. But Jimmy and Was, you know, Jimmy being a nutritionist for me and, uh, you know, leading the way. And, of course, Was a meditation and hydroponics coach. Um, how much influence have they had on you in the working sphere and carpet lane? Yeah, huge. I mean, you know, they're the godfathers of carpet lane down in Maroubra. And, um, geez, it feels like only yesterday I walked into the pub. Uh, I think I was 18. Was had just lost his license and said, what are you getting? You know, at the time I was just labouring. And he was like, you know, what are you getting paid labouring day? And I said, 90 bucks. Yeah, I'll pay you that just to drive me around a carpet <laughs> job. So that's how I got involved in carpet lane. You know, was needed someone to drive him. Was, uh, Jimmy Jimmy called me a, a carpet lane <laughs> chauffeur. And that's pretty much as I was. But that's how I picked up the trade. And, um, you know, I've worked with Jimmy over the years as well. And, now, Jimmy, he's a black belt now, jiu-jitsu. You know, he's always in the surf. He's one of the board riders. His two boys, you know, Billy and Jake, um, you know, are awesome young fellas. And the same he was too. He, he trains every morning. He's in the surf every arvo. And he's got a great young family uh, with Kobe and Jack and, and Bronny. So, you know, they're just, um, they're just again, guys who you know, really took me on the win in terms of the trade. You know, and while I was going through my late teens, early 20s, I was, I was learning how to lay cup underneath was. Uh, but he always gave me that freedom to go and surf and chase waves, whether it be on ship sterns or where it was. So, he, um, yeah, I really had the best of both worlds. You know, I was getting my trade, but when the waves were on somewhere and I was chasing that dream of being you know, a professional surfer, he always allowed me to do that because uh, he saw how much it meant to me. And uh, you know, he's a surfer himself. He's a great mate of mine. Uh, so he always, you know, I was so fortunate to have that freedom to go and chase waves. Where I knew a lot of my mates, you know, didn't have that kind of freedom with whatever sort of. You know, passionate was of theirs, whether it be footy, surfing, whatever. Once they could do a trade, you know, that sort of took over and that they kind of had to put everything else, you know, on, on, on the side. So I was very fortunate that it was, um, you know, gave them that avenue to, to do both. And your family, you know, you've got a sister, um, you know, obviously close to both your mum and dad, although they're not together anymore. But, you know, it sounds like uh, they've been big supporters regardless of what you've done, be it surfing, fighting. I know your mum won't go watch you fight anymore, but, uh, you know, they're... They were always in your corner, no doubt. Yeah, absolutely. I've got a you know, phenomenal family. Um, you know, my upbringing and, and the environment at home has always been amazing. Uh, yeah, you're right. Mum's never come to watch one of my fights. She uh, she hates even just talking about it. But uh, I, I, you know, I know that she really appreciates the lifestyle changes brought on. You know, but leading up you know, before I took fighting seriously, I was 
she's always worried about me getting in trouble and you know, this and that because that's kind of what the you know I I always seem to find myself doing. Um, but yeah, with introduction of mixed martial arts and taking that seriously. Uh, although she doesn't like watching me or hearing me step in, into the cage on the night, she loves the changes it's brought on. And uh, yeah, my dad's super supportive as well. My sister, no, my wife, I get, they, all the women in my life, like my, my sister, my mum, my wife, they um they don't like being there on the night and actually watching it go down, but they support me nonetheless. And you know, it was my uncle who introduced me to surfing. You know, um, the surf mad Pommy from Manchester somehow, you know, found his way to Avalon and all the beaches. It's great, and, um, isn't it? Yeah, my cousins. We I, I love you know, the, yeah, being a kid, spending time up there, and uh, spending all the time on the beach. So, being very fortunate in that respect as well. Richie, uh, you know we're bringing it home now, and, and you're expecting a baby with your beautiful wife, Lucia. She's been a massive support for you um, through many, many years, ups and downs. You know, great friend, and now she's going to be the mother of your first child, and and she's your beautiful wife of a year. Um, talk to us about uh, the influence and, and, the, and the friendship and the love there. Yeah, look, uh, you know, Lucy has been massive. We met when we were teenagers, you know, and uh, we started dating um, you know, almost, I don't know, 16 years ago or something. So it's been a, it's been an amazing journey with Lucy. And then you know, for her, especially, you know, throughout my fighting career, she's such, you know, she's a Pilates instructor by, by trade, and that's what her business is. But she's super health conscious. Um, you know, she doesn't drink, she doesn't party. So all that stuff that was getting me into trouble and, uh, like, steering me away from what it was I want to achieve, she, uh, she helped, you know, so introduce a new path and really encouraged me to, to live healthy and and really push me to achieve what it what it was she no, she knew that I, that what I wanted to try and uh, accomplish so yeah she's uh 16 weeks pregnant now so we're expecting our first baby which absolutely over the moon you know about all my mates on their second and third so um time to uh, catch up yeah time to catch up and uh you know it's been a chapter I've been pretty excited to step into and yeah you know we got married last year so after you know, years, you know, sort of teenage sweethearts. We've tied the knot and now she's up the duff, so I'm wrapped. <laughs> well, maybe people get tongue-tied when they talk about their missus and some some of our guests have ended up in tears. Have you got a little quick message for her? You're not going to be too afraid <laughs> to tell her how much you love her? Oh, man, I tell her all the time. You know, she not a day goes by now, I don't tell her how much I love her and, you know, how, how grateful I am for having her in my life because, it, you know, her influence was uh, was amazing and it still is today, you know, um, whether it be in my surfing, fighting or just, you know, my day-to-day life, she's... Uh, She's been amazing, and I cannot wait to step into parenthood with her. Mate, you said earlier on tonight, um, you know, when you were going, you could have gone either way, be it, you know, the right or wrong way. And uh, you mentioned it's not how you wanted to be remembered. How, do you, if you think about it, how, how do you want to be remembered? Oh, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. Just um, an easygoing fella who uh, likes to give things a nudge, you know, what he's passionate about, um, uh, of... I guess it's kind of cliche, but I never want. I never want to be a guy die, to die wondering. You know, if if you're passionate about something, I think uh, we've covered that. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. Just give it a go, and like, you're exactly right. Like, you know, I was, I was tinkering on that that edge. You know, growing up in Maroubra, where you know a lot of a lot of my mates or guys older me, you know, they, they they did get in trouble and go to the nick and, and that kind of stuff. And it kind of like became part and parcel of you know that's what life was about. You know, you, you got in trouble, you might have to go away for a bit. Um, but it wasn't. I was so fortunate for my you know my home life to. No, I want to make my parents proud. That that's really drew me away from that because there was that you know, times where I just thought, oh well, I'm trying to keep on carrying the drink, get in trouble, and if that's what happens, well, that's what happens. But um, that's not how I want to be remembered by. You know, I want to make my parents proud, my family proud, my friends proud, um, and, and go out there and achieve things that you know, I was truly passionate about. It and like I said, not died wondering. You know, had I have not given things a nudge that, you know, that I wanted, um, yeah, sit back later in life, just going, I wish I had it. You know, so. That's uh, yeah. Just want to be remembered as a, as a bloke, you know, <laughs> who uh, enjoys life. 
Mate, I apologise if Silky made it sound like you were doing your own eulogy there <laughs> or you're retired. But uh, when it is all said and done and you're going to sit back and you're going to have this beautiful child in your arms, be a beautiful little girl or a, you know, a nice, strong young boy, and you'll be there with your beautiful wife, Lucia, and you'll just have a smile on your face and you're going to be looking at it, Maruba, and what are you going to think of, do you think? Like, what's, what's one thing that may come to your mind? It could be a story at Shipstones. It could be getting ready for a fight. Could be falling off a bike with Ev and pornos, you know. Who knows? <laughs> What's one thing you think it'll it'll touch in your your head that always often comes into your mind? Oh, mate, at that moment, if I'm uh, I'm sitting there with Lucia and uh, and our newborn looking over Maru Beach, I'd just be uh, extremely grateful, mate. Just I don't think I'll be thinking about past you know events or you know shenanigans. It'll just be extremely grateful to have a healthy bub, healthy wife, and uh, you know just a loving family. It's just plain and simple. If I can, uh, you know, I think. Yeah, be happy and healthy with my loved ones. That's all I sort of, you know, hope to achieve in life. I think if you've, if you've got those things covered, everything else is, uh, you know, is is going to be good anyway. So basically that's it, mate. Just be very grateful and be happy to uh, have finally realised my dick works. Well, <laughs> well, that segues into So We always finish with these two great questions. They are Silkies and I love them. Uh, he's going to ask him of you now, uh, Richie Vass. And uh, I just want to say before Silky finishes off, mate, it's been outstanding. This is probably my favourite podcast. <laughs> Apologise to the other guests we've had, but it's just been high octane. It's been outstanding. It's just been a whole journey. And we've had the most highest quality guests on here. We want to thank you so much for coming to the Radio Hub. But I'm going to hold over to Silky. <laughs> mate, you've dipped your toe in numerous sports. You know, we've, Some we haven't even touched on, like diving and, and free diving and stuff like that. But if you can think about it, just briefly, what's the best bit of advice you've ever been given? Oh, you know, I've, I've had loads of good advice. Um, there's some I chose not to listen to, which I probably should have, and probably some I took that I probably shouldn't have taken. Um, but, you know, mate, a bit of advice is, I just think I just touched on it. It's like, you know, just don't die wondering. If it's something you love doing in any walk of life, whether it be academic, trade, sporting, um, give it a go. Uh, you, you, regardless of the result, you're not going to regret it, and you're going to be better for it, so... Um, don't die wondering and whatever it is your heart desires, you know, stay true to it and give it a nudge. Well, Richie, on behalf of uh, all the people who are going to listen to this podcast, I'd like to thank you for spending your time with Bush and myself. Mate, um, we've got a great deal out of this and I'm sure the people that listen to this show when they look back, I dare say they'll get something out of it too. But, mate, thanks for uh, spending some time with us. You've been listening to A Cure for Baldness. We've been speaking to Richie Vass. Thanks for having us, boys. Hopefully uh, get back in again soon. Don't die wondering. Yeah.